0: This is week two of our series on suffering. Last week we looked at how suffering is often of our own making, but the writer of Ecclesiastes says whether we cause our suffering or it comes from things we can't control, it's all vanity anyways. We work to sublimate our pain, which means we harness the bad to bring good. And in the end, we praise God and work to love our neighbor. Today we're going to look at what it means to love our neighbors who suffer. Some of you have wondered, what do you do for people that are in need? What is the right response for people around the world that are in poverty or the people you encounter on your way to work? Do you ignore it? Do you give money? And if so, what is the right amount to give? Let's hear our scripture for today. It comes from Acts chapter 4. We're going to hear now... Uh, verses 32 into chapter 5, verse 11 from Ed. Hear now God's word.
1: Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what they sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him, then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. Now when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all those who heard of it. The young man came and wrapped up his body, then carried him out to be buried. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and died. When the young men came in, they found her dead, so they carried her out and buried her beside her her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these things.
0: And from 1 John 3.17, How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses to help? This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I invite you to join me in our prayer preparation. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. When I was writing my sermon this week, I sought out some advice on how to go about it. I turned to my seven-year-old, Davy, and said, Davy, should I start by telling people how the amount of money they have compares to everyone else, or should I tell them how to get rich? He said, tell them how they compare. And then when I asked why, he said, because it's easy to get rich. I was very interested and intrigued, so I had a follow-up question asking, then how do you get rich? His answer was priceless. He thought for a moment, and he said, you just work really hard, and then, I don't know, you mine for diamonds or something. <laughs> so there you have it, just mine for diamonds. Uh, but if you'd like advice on getting rich from someone other than a seven-year-old, hang tight. I've got some thoughts on it that I'll share in a moment. But I am going to follow Davy's advice and share first how you compare to everyone else in terms of wealth. Here's a simple chart. It shows how much money is owned by different groups of people. It's a little small, I know, but I'll... Oops. Uh, I'll I'll walk you through it. So this large box right here, that's people who their entire amount of wealth equals $10,000. And that is right here. It says 70% of the world's population has less than $10,000 in total wealth. And so here, right here, you can see this section right here. This is the total wealth on the planet. It equals about uh, $7.6 trillion, right? Right. So this next section here is people who have about $10,000 to $100,000. That's about 20% of the world's population. And you follow the arrow right here. That's about $32 trillion here. The next section is uh, people who have $100,000 to about a $1 million in total wealth. And these are adults, by the way. Not, not, it doesn't include children. That's almost 8% of the population. You follow this arrow here. So here you have about $111 trillion. That's, I think it says, 30% of the population, or the 30% of the total wealth is owned by this uh, 7, 8%. And then right here, you have people who have over a million dollars in total wealth, this tiny little sliver here. It's not the 1%, it's the 0.7%. So that 0.7%, you go across, and they own here about... 45 percent of the world's wealth and that's 128 trillion dollars all right so you're in one of those categories i don't think we have anyone in that top category but if you do please start tithing all right uh so uh you could break it down more and find out exactly where you might fall in relation to others one group has assigned a number to everyone based on their net worth if your net worth is under a thousand dollars you're probably a Poor subsistence farmer, but you could also be a rich person on a very bad day where your debt exceeds your assets. Uh, anyone in this category would be a number one or two. If you are worth under ten thousand, you are like one point seven billion other adults. You could cover a small emergency without borrowing money. You probably rent your home. You are a number three. Fours are under $100,000, like the 1.3 billion others. You can probably afford a new car. Fives, though, have up to a million dollars, can cover the mortgage on their home, and number about 436 million people. Already, though, this last group is about 15% of the world's population. Most of us will never get to this net worth in our lifetimes, unless, of course, you mine for diamonds, Right? Now I'd like to share with you what I discovered. I found out how to become a millionaire. I promise you this is not a get rich quick scheme. I am not going to ask you to buy my book at the end of the service for 1995. It's nothing like that, I promise. This is actually from some research by Tom Corley who worked at CNBC, so you know you can trust it. Uh, he spent Five years researching and interviewing rich people So he could figure out how to become rich And here's what he found Besides inheriting wealth There are four ways to get rich One is through what he calls the dreamer path You start a business You become a successful actor, a musician, or an author It is by far the hardest way to get rich So if you don't want to do it the hard way Instead you can climb the corporate ladder This is where people spend all their time and money on getting ahead in business. It probably means you go to work really early and get out late. You have to travel frequently, give up vacation time, and be really good at influencing powerful people in the industry. So this one's not all that easy either. Another way is what's called the virtuoso. You're just insanely good at what you do because you studied for an advanced degree and kept practicing every single day, so you are just flat out better than everyone else at what you do. So those are three ways to get rich, but if none of those are for you, there's still one more way to get rich. It's the saver-investor way. The fun part about this one is that if you start early, it is guaranteed to make a lot of money. Just keep earning, be frugal, keep saving, invest the money wisely, and you'll get there. The people who succeeded at this did one thing in particular besides having a low cost of living. They saved 20% or more of their income. Now, I know that means you have to exercise incredible financial restraint. It means choosing to not buy the things you might like or not doing the things you might like to do. That can be exhausting for many people. But if you want to get rich, that is the one way that is accessible to just about all of us. So now you know the secret. But then we have to ask ourselves, what would God have us do with the money we earn? Is there an expectation, a requirement, as Christians, on what we do with it? Interestingly enough, the answer we find in Acts Chapter 5 is no. We hear at the end of chapter 4 how everyone is sharing their money in this new environment. They are so moved by the Holy Spirit that they have all things in common. Someone is in need and instead of saying, that's mine, you can't have it, they decide to share. People go so far as to sell their fields or homes so they can take the money and give it to those in need. In ancient times, selling your possessions was often a requirement to join certain groups. You had to turn your possessions over to the leader. Here, though, the people just willingly give it out over love for the group. There was absolutely no requirement on them. They just offer it up. And I I wonder, could you imagine doing something like that yourself? You sell your house, and you give the money to the poor. That is a pretty noble thing to do right some might say it's foolish because your field in ancient times was the way that you make money that's how you grow crops to sell at the market that's the path to becoming a millionaire right but here they talk about how giving to the poor is a powerful witness to the resurrection of the master jesus then they name someone specifically who has done exactly that barnabas sold his field and gave the money to the apostles Later on, we hear that Barnabas has become a missionary traveling with Paul and Mark. But right now, he's just a great guy helping this community of believers. Now, it might seem strange that someone is specifically named for doing this charitable act of selling their property. But it makes sense when you see what is coming next. At the start of chapter 5, someone else has sold their field. Someone else is going to give to the poor. So Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is making sure we know there were, in fact, good people that sold their field and gave to the poor out of the goodness of their hearts. He tells us this because in chapter 5, this other family has done just about the exact opposite of that. Ananias and Sapphira, husband and wife, have sold part of their land, told people they were going to give all the money to the church, and then only gave part of it. Peter, who is leading the church after Jesus has ascended into heaven, says plainly, When the field was yours, it was yours to do with as you pleased. And when you sold the field, it was still your money to do whatever you wanted with it. But instead of simply giving a portion of the money to the church and keeping some for whatever you needed, you lied about it. You told people you were going to sell the land and give it all to the church, which you did not do. Caught in his lie, Ananias drops dead at the feet of the apostles. Notice, that's the same place where Barnabas laid his riches. Barnabas willingly gave his riches to the apostles. Ananias, he gives up his life. This passage has some parallels and clear connections to another one in joshua chapter 7 more than a thousand years before joshua marched the israelite army against essentially the strongest city in the country instead of losing or sustaining heavy heavy losses in a victory they win without losing anyone how did israel do this they simply marched around the city for seven days and on the seventh time around on the seventh day They blew their trumpets and the walls of the city came tumbling down Israel has won their biggest victory today and they hardly had to lift a finger because god was fighting for them So that's the setup for this parallel verse The next thing that happens is israel goes to fight this tiny little town called ai The town is so little they say oh, we don't need the whole army. We just need two or three thousand men. That's plenty And when it comes time for the attack, Israel gets absolutely routed. Israel flees for their lives after sustaining heavy losses. And Joshua, the leader of the army, realizes something is wrong. He tears his clothes, an ancient sign of mourning and grief, and he cries out to God, God, why did you bring us all this way from Egypt if you were just going to let this tiny little town be the end of us? And Joshua hears a response. I didn't let you lose. You did it to yourselves. You sinned against me and have taken what does not belong to you. So Joshua discerns who it is that is stolen from God. The man confesses that he stole gold, silver, and a, a nice robe. The soldiers go and find what he has stolen The man and his family are punished, and then Israel is able to easily conquer this tiny town of Ai. The lesson, then, is that if you take what is rightfully God's, you will be punished. You are preventing yourself and others around you from experiencing the blessing God has for you. You know, what's remarkable to me is that when we come back to Acts chapter 5, we hear Peter say what it is that belongs to God. He says, You are free to give or not to give to help this community. You don't have to do it. But what you do have to do is follow through on your commitment. You can't say one thing and do another. You can't show off your charitable gifts and then just not give. Intending to give away your money and then keeping it all for yourself is a serious sin, which leads in Joshua to the death of Achan and his family. In Acts, Ananias dies, and finally his wife Sapphira also dies after she tries to keep up the lie. Over and over, people who desire other people's possessions, who hoard, who want to show off their generosity but are actually stingy in their hearts, they end up dead. You can see this is a serious problem. There's a story of a fire out in Toronto, Canada from a few years ago. Firefighters had been called in to fight a blaze in an apartment building. Usually that's not a big deal. It takes an hour or so to put one out. But this time it took over eight hours and eventually forced more than 1,000 people in 700 apartments to go to a local community center. But why did a single apartment fire cause the entire massive building to be evacuated? It's amazing to me what science can do, but they figured out it all started from a cigarette butt that had fallen from several floors above. It rolled into this apartment that was filled from floor to ceiling. The owner, Stephen Vasilev, was a hoarder. The entire single-room apartment was filled with legal papers Stephen used to fight a lawsuit over some townhouses he once owned. His legal fight caused 17 people to go to the hospital. Even more interesting is where the hoarding affliction comes from. It is, at its core, the inability to appropriately prioritize. A hoarder can't figure out what is important and what is not. They can't see floor-to-ceiling papers aren't helping anyone. So Peter tells us, We are all free to choose what to do with our money, what to do with our possessions. You know, I wish scripture just said, give your money to the church so that it will be given to the poor. Or you must give to alleviate suffering. But it doesn't. It says you can choose. When I look at the state of our world, I see 1.5 billion adults who have less than $1,000 in the whole world. Some might be living happily, but when you think of people who live on less than a dollar a day, people who are starving to death, people who have a far shorter life expectancy because of malnutrition and disease, I'm not sure why we are not compelled by God to help. We are given a choice. And then when I think of children, estimated at 500 million worldwide, kids no different than my own two boys who suffer these same afflictions as adults do for seemingly no good reason, it makes me wish there was a direct command that said, if you are people of God, then you must help end this suffering. Instead, you must choose what to do with what you have. But I am sure of this. Even if we are not commanded to give away our wealth, we must prioritize appropriately. The command we do have is to love, and our choices must flow out of this love. So what does it look like to love the people around us? Is it hoarding? Is it putting stuff ahead of people? No, of course not. That leads to death, both physical and spiritual. Is it giving everything away until we have nothing? Well, not usually. Barnabas did it, and he traveled the world telling people about the good news of Jesus Christ. I don't think for a second that he regretted that decision, but not everyone is called to that life. So between these two poles, we have to discern what is right for us. Are we doing enough to help others? Are we doing enough to end suffering? For me, And I think if we are being honest, for most of us, the answer is no, we are not doing enough. We live in the richest country in the history of the world. Even our middle class is about 90 times richer than most people throughout all of history. What are you going to do with all that you have? Will you prioritize yourself or will you prioritize helping others in need? Last point here, there was a boy whose father told him a story over and over. The story was of a man who went to visit Harvard University so he could give a donation. The president agrees to see the man and his wife, but he doesn't know them, and because they're from somewhere way out west, he treats them curtly. After a few moments, the woman finally turns to her husband and says, Come, Leland. I think there are better things that we can do with our money. The man was... Leland Stanford, who would go on to be the founder of Stanford University. The reason this boy's father told this story over and over was because the man believed that money was power. And the more money you had, the more power you had over people. With money, you could thumb your nose at anyone. But later in life, this man went to church with his wife and son, and one day he gave his life over to Christ. It wasn't soon after that he started tithing and giving his money away to help others. At 70, the father suffered a heart attack, and within a few days, he died. At the funeral, a woman the son had never seen before came up to him and said, You don't know me, but I was in a bad marriage. My husband was beating me, and I needed to get out to save my life. But I didn't know what I would do to support myself. Your dad paid for me to go to junior college and get a degree so I could be a dental hygienist. He paid for the whole thing, and nobody else knew about it. Now I have a job, and I'm making it. Your dad literally saved my life. I don't know about you, but I know when I die, I want people to be able to tell stories like that about me. I want to know that people who were overwhelmed by suffering found comfort because of the choices I made. Not to hoard, not to control people with money or power, but to bless those who are in need. Would you like to have a life like that? If so, it starts with a choice. You are free to do what you want with your money and your stuff. But if you give to help others... You will not only reduce suffering, you will be a real millionaire, a millionaire of the spirit. Amen.